0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Source Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, we'll spend most of our podcast talking with Linda Darling-Hammond, who is president of the Learning Policy Institute, about a new study showing encouraging outcomes at some California schools, and to get her thoughts on her early days as president of the State Board of Education. But, John, before we go to Linda, I did want to get to the announcement this week that the college board will expand an experiment they've been running on the SAT to publish a so-called adversity score alongside a student's
1: regular score. Yeah, it's fascinating. At, at this point, we don't know enough about how it works. work. What are the factors that go into an adversity index? And SAT hasn't really said other than sites and possibilities. But the new score will be featured in a section that's called the Environmental Context Dashboard and it will reflect family income crime rate in the neighborhood and the quality of the high school that the student attends and among lot, other factors
0: a lot of other factors i think they're talking about 15 we That's don't really know which ones i mean i have to say that this is already being done to a certain extent i mean at the university of california they do look at a student's background in many cases, the so-called comprehensive review. So the notion of looking at where a student comes from and quality of high school is not a new idea, but it's certainly new in terms of matching that with the SAT.
1: That's right. The SAT has come under a lot of criticism because, you know, we just know it's a fact that it correlates largely with the family income of the student. You mean the scores? Yes. The score correlates more than anything else with family income and and then their family advantages that students have with that, including perhaps test prep. So this is a recognition that students struggle and these other factors in a student's neighborhood and factors of background need to be recognized as well.
0: Yeah, I thought the quote of the week came from David Coleman, who heads the college board. He said, We've got to admit the truth that wealth inequality has progressed to such a degree that it isn't fair to look at test scores alone. You must look at them in the context of the adversity students face. And it just really interesting to see how the SAT now is becoming part of the discussion debate around income inequality in the United States, which is a major issue. It looks like it'll be a major issue in the presidential election coming up.
1: Well, we've known that for a long time. The data has shown that. Now, however, SAT is struggling to remain relevant because a lot of schools are no longer using SAT or ACT, they're looking at grades and other things, largely because of this criticism. And then, of course, we've got the uh, college admission scandal, which adds, Didn't help. <laughs> yeah, that didn't help SAT, although it obviously was the parents involved, not SAT. Nonetheless, it added to that debate. Well,
0: it showed how the SAT could be gamed by those who really wanted to do Precisely.
1: that. Precisely. <laughs> and UC is reevaluating right now how much weight to give the SAT and whether, in fact, it should be used.
0: Is that the case?
1: It's a long-term decision. UC does not move quickly. But yes, it's reconsidering the SAT as a factor.
0: And we should just note that for the time being, only a tiny number of students will get this adversity score because it's only going to affect kids at 150 high schools. And there are 26,000 public high schools, another 10,000 private schools in the United States. So... uh, long way from affecting every kid out there.
1: Well, SAT says it might consider going national in a year or two, so maybe it's not too far away. But one of the factors here is that students themselves as it is now, won't get the scores. Only their colleges would get the adversity index. And so I'm sure that's going to be controversial, too, because it's not as transparent as perhaps a lot of people want.
0: That's puzzling to me. I don't know why. Why would that be something that they wouldn't want to share with students or parents?
1: Well, they don't want to open that black box and see what that algorithm looks like, perhaps. I mean, I, I you know, this is an important recognition by SAT, Nonetheless, when you get down in the details of how this was worked, it could be quite controversial.
0: Well, a lot of discussion, and it comes at a time, I have to say, this time of the year when students are taking their uh, SATs. So I think the notion that the adversity that students face might offset a low score would come as welcome news to some students.
1: And I imagine resented by the wealthier schools where students do well in the SAT will wonder whether or not they're being disadvantaged by this as well.
0: And, of course, I'm sure some students who face adversity wouldn't want to get any special kind of preference as a result of that as well. Many layers to this issue. Let's go now to Linda Darling-Hammond, the president of the Learning Policy Institute and also, since February, president of the State Board of Education, thanks to her being appointed to the board by Governor Newsom. So Linda now is wearing many hats, but the first hat she's wearing today is as a researcher. She, along with several colleagues from Stanford and the RAND Institute, have
1: come out with
0: a study comparing how schools are doing on the standardized tests that millions of kids take every year.
1: That's right. It's called the California's Positive Outliers, Districts Beating the Odds. The study found that despite wide achievement gaps, some school districts have excelled at supporting the learning of all their students. This analysis identifies what they call positive outlier districts, those in which students of color as well as white students consistently achieve at higher levels than students from similar racial and ethnic backgrounds.
0: And we asked Linda Darling-Hammond whether she is encouraged by those findings.
1: Well, it's encouraging
2: to be able to see uh, some of the factors that may be associated with uh, making positive gains uh, in this era of new standards, new assessments, they're trying to measure deeper learning, being able to learn a little bit about what the districts that are outperforming expectations are doing, I think is, is hopeful. And um, I think we'll be able to save even more when we are able to release the qualitative studies about the way in which they are doing the work that is making a difference for students.
1: What you're saying is that the improvement is, is by positive outliers that are above average. But, of course, you're not saying that the average improvement in California is sufficient in math and English language arts, are you?
2: Uh, Well, that would be a whole different matter. But I will say that uh, over the last five or six years since the LCFF formula and the new resources from Proposition 30 have been put in place and the new standards and the new assessments, we are making gains against other states nationally. In fact, California had some of the largest gains in the country on the national assessments between 2015 and 2017. If you just kind of look at where we were in 2007, we were 48th in the nation in 8th grade reading. And by 2017, we had gotten all the way almost up to the national average, one point away from the national average in reading. We closed the gap with the national average in math by half. Uh, That doesn't mean that we are done doing the work and California is not yet ranking above average in the country. But the gap is closing both between and among uh, groups of students in California based on that measure and also between us and other states.
1: So you found 156 districts out of uh, the 435 that had at least 200 African-American students and Hispanic students. What were some of these districts, really big districts, small districts
2: of the big districts we found Long Beach and San Diego showed up over and over again across the years and on different measures. We had some medium sized districts like uh, Clovis and uh, Hawthorne, with some teeny tiny districts like gridley and in a study that will be released in the summer we did case studies in big and small districts that were part of this group that we identified.
1: So you went back and you looked and tried to figure out what do they have in common, right, that that led to these what you call positive outliers, and you looked for a number of factors, and what did you come up with the sort of the most outstanding factor that had an impact?
2: Well, in the quantitative study that we just released, we were able to look at Some aspects of the district composition, some funding pieces, and some aspects of staffing. And we found that the strongest in-school factor was the proportion of teachers who had emergency permits, waivers, or intern credentials, and that had a strong negative effect on achievement. So the flip side would be true. The more teachers who were fully prepared and credentialed, the better the achievement. And then for African-American and Latino students, we also found that the average teaching experience within the district had a strong positive effect.
1: So you're saying that experience matters. But does that mean, for example, that if you have lots of first and second year teachers and a lot of turnover in a district, you're constantly sort of renewing the kind of training and professional development and you have to sort of build the collegiality and collaborative nature that you've often described as key to improving uh, achievement.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a big literature on the fact that experience matters, that inexperienced teachers are typically less effective, that uh, schools that have a lot of churn have a decrease in achievement just because of the churn, the turnover, which means that, you know, as you're trying to, improve the school, the people who've learned how to do certain things are leaving, and then you have to start all over with the new people.
1: Well, you know, your study came out. It's a nice timing for that because in the governor's budget, there is substantial money for a loan forgiveness program that you have advocated for a long time. In fact, the governor credited you with your persuasiveness that he would include the money for this and for uh, some other spending we can talk about,
2: I've been articulating a view for many years that, you know, we obviously need to prepare teachers well so that they can teach to the new standards and so on. We have had a big shortage. Uh, right now, uh, as of last year, about half the people coming into the profession in California did come in on what the CTC calls substandard credentials. The state has been making investments in some new undergraduate programs, in helping classified staff. Uh, become certified. This is one additional investment that the governor has proposed to have some kind of service scholarship or forgivable loan that says to people, if you will teach in our shortage fields and our shortage locations, we'll pay for your education and you pay it back as service. So there are, um, you know, a number of ways to build a strong teaching force and to eliminate shortages. And the governor's budget certainly adds to the portfolio of efforts in California to really address this problem and put it behind us.
0: So you must be thrilled. I mean, $90 million in uh, potential college loan assistance. Of course, the legislature also has to go along with it, but uh, I imagine they will, given this uh, broad recognition of the need. What was your overall reaction to the governor's proposal?
2: I think it's a very productive proposal. I'm hopeful that it will find its way through the legislature and that we will you know, continue this kind of work for a, a number of years so that we, as I say, really solve the problem. There are some states that have eliminated teacher shortages. California once did it before. And so if we, I think, are focused on, on this issue, will help these districts that are out there. They can't create their own supply of teachers. A small little district out in the boondocks, and there are many of those and many other districts that are bigger than that, but can't, you know, create a teacher supply. So I'm hopeful that really uh, boosting the incentives to come into teaching with an approach that will also keep people in the classroom for four years or more will help us get to the other side of the problem.
0: Talking with Linda Darling-Hammond, president of the Learning Policy Institute, about a new study she and several colleagues have put out. So I have to ask you, uh, you are now wearing another hat as president of the State Board of Education. You've had a couple of meetings and just wondered, anything that surprised you about your tenure so far? You're still on the board? You haven't handed in your resignation?
2: No, no, I'm still on the board. <laughs> well, I, you know, I will say and, uh, the members of the State Board who are have been on the board through the last era, have done some really important work with respect to creating you know, a new accountability system, a whole new way of helping districts think about budgeting through the LCAP and think about their goals and their priorities and creating uh, the beginnings of a continuous improvement system in the state. So I am appreciative of the work that has come before Coming onto the board, one realizes how many issues they deal with, of what scope and size, and that is certainly uh, a little bit surprising uh, well you
0: you already had one controversial issue these uh, sex ed guidelines that a lot of opposition to
2: yeah well let me let me just say that the health education frameworks, which I think you are referring to, yes, about ninety percent of the content in the health education frameworks has nothing to do with sex education. (laughs) It has to do with nutrition and injury prevention and uh, all kinds of things that kids need to know about how to be healthy physically uh, in terms of fitness and the way they conduct themselves. Uh, There is a state law that was passed a few years ago in 2016 requiring sex education at least once in middle school and once in high school. So the health education framework does include some um, guidance and uh, resources for implementing that law,
0: and those were the that was the portion that generated the that controversy. was much of
2: the conversation at the board meeting. Uh, all of it is guidelines; none of it is mandatory. <laughs> Districts don't have to use it. Parents can opt out, but as you uh, perceived, you know that is uh, quite a. Flesh point for a lot of folks, and we tried to be very responsible about what resources would even be recommended or mentioned in the guidelines, as well as the way in which the tools could be used.
0: Well, you actually removed some books that were somehow linked to this these frameworks. Is that correct?
2: We did. The board got a lot of feedback from the public. We appreciated the feedback. We thought some of the feedback was helpful. And, you know, we responded by maintaining some of the resources and removing others.
0: Well, we've been talking with Linda Darling-Hammond, president of the Learning Policy Institute, also now president of the State Board of Education. And we look forward to being in touch with you on these and other matters going forward.
2: I look forward to it as well. Thank you.
1: Louis, before we sign off, the California School Boards Association this week came out with a new poll that's interesting. It shows widespread support for a $11 billion tax to raise more revenue for California schools. And it got pretty good numbers, anywhere between 60 and 68% support, depending how much information is provided. It's a good start. And, you know, it's good timing for you, too, because you've got a webinar next week on adequacy in funding. And...
0: That's right, John. We are on Tuesday at 3 o'clock, for those of you listening. We're going to be doing a webinar with Partnership for LA Schools. Uh, Ryan Smith, who we have worked with before, who was at Ed Trust West before that. It's called Avoiding the Fiscal Cliff, How Adequate School Funding Can Close Equity Gaps. This poll suggests substantial support for additional funding for schools, even though, as Governor Newsom points out, like 45% of the state budget now goes to schools and community colleges.
1: There are various options, various possibilities for taxes, and some of which are broader-based, and some of which go back to the wealthy, uh, which we've already taxed uh, substantially in the state, and it's a volatile source of income. But, you know, you'll, you'll mention the possibilities, I'm sure, at, at this webinar, and be interesting to hear what others say. Well, good luck with that webinar, Lewis. I'll be listening, and I hope a lot of others will too. You can still sign up, right? Still register?
0: Yes. Go to our website, and you'll see a sign-up prominently displayed. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thanks to our producer, Kobe MacDonald. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.